It's good to see you guys. Uh, we are beginning a new series today, and uh, very, very, very excited about this, especially some of the testimonies you're going to hear coming up. We're going to be going through 1 Corinthians, the whole book. And if you're not familiar, I'm going to give a little bit of background here in a second. 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. So in this letter, we're going to learn a lot about today. We're going to talk about church unity and maturity. We're going to learn a lot about that beyond um, order and what God expects out of his people and what this looks like in the midst of a people that were definitely not perfect. One of my favorite things about even this book and starting this book or this letter that Paul writes, he starts it by honestly saying, calling them saints, saying, I'm thankful for you. You guys are called. And then if you know anything else about the rest of the book, he proceeds to say, but you're messed up. How many of us in here could say, I I'm messed up? Yeah, yeah, me too. I'm raising my hand. I got two hands up. I'm wearing the t-shirt. No perfect people allowed. And, and I love this about Paul and about Jesus in general is he's the perfect one that came into an imperfect world. Not to say you have to be perfect in order to know me, but he said, I will be perfect for you. So now our goal and our job is to be perfectable. So it's not a matter of I'm just, I'm not perfect. I'm only human. That's not true. It's true that you're only, that you're only human and you're not perfect. But ultimately the goal is to be perfectable, to be like the perfect one, to be like Jesus. And that's what we're striving for. That's what we're aiming for. And that's where we're trying to go. So even in the midst of saying no perfect people allowed, the goal is perfection. In fact, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5. He said, be perfect as I am perfect. And you could go, man, Jesus, that's, that's, that's a lot. But here's what he's trying to say. Run and live as such a way that your goal is to be perfect. Because otherwise, you could just make excuses and rationalize for your bad or broken behavior. And God will fill in the blanks for that and give you grace and love. But he wants you to strive to be perfectable. He wants you to strive to be like Jesus. So when Jesus says, be perfect, what he's trying to say, anybody ever played tennis in here? I saw Scott Dolly. He's a good tennis player. You don't want to play with him. He's a good athlete altogether. But the goal, the, 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 what I'm striving for is to hit the ball perfectly. Now, if you play with me, it's not necessarily going to go that way. I can make the, <clears throat> like all the players and all the, the ladies, like I could do that really well, but the ball's not going to hit right. If you're ever playing basketball, the goal is to make it every time. If that's not your goal, what's wrong with you, right? But you know you're not, you're not necessarily going, but that's the goal, and this is what Jesus is trying to say. We're going forward into maturity, into perfection, and it starts with realizing I'm broken and I'm not perfect, but I want to be like Jesus. One of my my favorite things about this series that we're going to get into is that we're going to have about six different testimonies about every other week of some of the people in our church to be able to share with you their brokenness, but also their striving to be perfectible, to be like Jesus and what God has done in their life. And so as you follow along, I really want to encourage you, 
to come this summer. We're going to really push hard in the First Corinthians. If you're not able to make a Sunday, it's all good. We have uh, led by G. Yoon what, what we call CLC Starter, and it's the goal is to start your devotional time, and so you can get that on our app or clcstarter.com, and we'll be going through with our starter teachers and those that write this, this curriculum every day or write these devotions every day. Um, we'll be going through all of 1 Corinthians, so it's a great kind of way for all of our church to understand unity, maturity, and see where God has ultimately taken us. Without further ado, I want to have your attention on the screen for uh, one of our awesome members, Jermaine Phelps. He opened up his heart, became very vulnerable to talk about his brokenness as well as what God is doing in him as an imperfect person. Check this out. My name is Jermaine Phillips. I'm a member here at City Life Church. I used to be a campus minister for six years at the University of Houston in Texas Southern. So I went to the University of Houston and I got saved at a college uh, athlete conference in 2003. Um, after that, when I graduated from college, I felt called to campus ministry. So I came back to the University of Houston. Uh, when I went into my relationship with my ex-wife, um, she knew some of this, but she didn't know the depths of the struggles that I had. With the issues in my lust and my past, I committed, uh, other than a better word I can think about it, I cheated on her before we got married and never told her about it, hid it because of the, the shame from one behind it, the stupidity as well with it, and the fear of, I don't wanna lose all this because of what I felt like was one dumb mistake. As we started to have issues, um, just on what seemed like small stuff, fighting here, bickering here, arguing about this, um, it felt like everything we kept doing couldn't make it work. So I never, in my wildest dreams, thought the whole thing would just go like the way it did. So as our marriage started to get worse and worse and we grew to a place where we wouldn't talk, we wouldn't be around each other, it grew to a place where the people who were trying to help us was like, yo, y'all need professional help because y'all got issues. And the part that um, I would say was the hardest for me in the marriage was when when we split and actually broke apart, um, the, the feeling of it, even though we was only married for, at that time, it was a little over a year. We've been dating for four. To lose your, your wife um, because she doesn't want to be with you, um, it shattered the inside of me, honestly. In our divorce, I ended up losing my wife. I ended up, my job, I ended up losing my house. It felt like my whole life was pretty much just ripped from me quickly. I knew I needed to come back to God because that's where my healing was gonna be. Really dealing with it um, was almost too much most of the time. So instead I would go to pretty much anything else that would numb the pain, drinking, partying, um, girls, whatever else would make me feel, at least for a moment, a temporary thing of being okay rather than actually dealing with it. Um, and I had friends in my life who was trying, talking to me, I had people in my life, everyone was trying to help me. And I, I so appreciate everybody's love and help for me. But the thing of at the time, I didn't even want to face it because it just, it hurts so much. So during this time where I felt like I was in pretty much open rebellion against God, like not living for him at all, the thing that was blowing my mind was that God felt closer, more loving, 
more forgiving, more wanting of me than ever before. Instead of what I was expecting to feel, which was going to be like a disappointment, um, rejection, or a scouting, like you need to get your stuff together, I felt like instead I felt um, a father, like calling me back home, trying to say like, I understand, come back to me, in me is where peace is, in me is where you will find your rest. Nothing else will satisfy you like how I will satisfy you. It was just breaking, like it just broke. It broke the, the fear and the pain part and instead led to me coming back to God even less, but even more because it was, you see me for who I am and don't care because you just want me and you love me and you've known me before I was born. You knew this and you still desired and called me to what you've called me to. Um, so that in itself brought me back and kept me there and as well reassured me that God is for you really who can be against you and that nothing that can ever rise up against you can separate you from the love of Christ. Another huge thing that's been unexpectedly helpful was just seeing and hearing the stories of people who were encouraged by me when I was, I felt like trash, honestly, when I was not doing well and saying that like seeing you stick it out helped us out, seeing you fight through this encouraged us. Um, students who I'd helped way back in campus ministry, seeing them moving forward in life and checking on me and then as well talking about, yo, you helped us do this, you helped show me this, like thank you for what you did, your sacrifice, now I get to help this person like this and I'm doing this and it's just been, it's been um, kind of surprising just the impact you have without even knowing it sometimes. But the, the biggest thing hands down has just been taking it day by day and trusting that what God has called me to, I'm going to do. Not because of anything great about me, but because of who he is. So. Definitely deserving of a clap. Um, I was, a lot of us were with Jermaine during that time, and it was, it was a hard time. But I, I love what he said in the midst of his brokenness. Um, God was actually still running and chasing after him. God was like the father, the prodigal son father that's waiting. And, and as soon as he sees his son, like, I'm running to you. And that's the God we serve. Isn't he amazing? That's the God of the broken, um, that you don't have to have all your stuff together to come before God. In fact, we tell people often, trying to get your stuff together before you approach God is like brushing your teeth before you go to the dentist. It's absurd. The, the dentist probably appreciates it because you have better breath. Uh, but it's not going to do anything for the damage that you've been doing. Um, ultimately, you just come to God, the one that can heal the broken, and the one who says, I know you're not perfect, but I'm, I, and I accept you for who you are, but I refuse to leave you there. I refuse to coddle you where you are. I'm going to take you to another place. And that's what I love about 1 Corinthians is you see the love and the grace and the acceptance of God through the gospel, and yet you also see Paul coming in like a father telling these people, hey, we're going places. God's got a plan, and God wants to see some amazing things in you. And in fact, you're not doing it alone. You're not laboring alone. You're, you're not out here alone. You're co-laborers with God. He's doing it in you and with you. So let's just work with him in his current. And so I love it. Let me give you a little bit of, of context. Um, so you have this guy named Jesus, okay, um, born 
a perfect person in an imperfect world in order to bring the solution to our brokenness. He lives this amazing life teaching, preaching, miracles. He claims to be God. And then he dies and his disciples are fraught with fear, sorrow, and and hiding and scared. And he rises again and the scripture says some 500 people saw him at one time. So not a, an illusion, but and, and the different, each one of his disciples got to touch his actual body and, and, and see where the nails pierced his skin after his resurrection. And after that, they're pumped up. They're ready to go share the message. And he says, no, wait, you need to go and pray. And so they go and they pray. And in the book of Acts chapter 2, it says about 120 of them are praying and gathering, just saying, how do we take this message ultimately? And, and the Bible says that Jesus baptized them, sent his Holy Spirit, immersed them in the Holy Spirit. And then on that same day, in one day, 3,000 just men, not to mention women and children, came to Jesus in one day and the church exploded into being. And now they're having to like how do we live this life and what are we doing? Are we, gonna, are we going fully Old Testament like all the traditions and the, the laws and the eating and everything? Or what does this new life look like now that Jesus has come and conquered sin and death? How do we live now and advance his kingdom and help people enter his kingdom? And so they develop church and they have levels of authority and people because Jesus said there are apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. And so God starts bringing order to the church, but the church is messed up. Don't, don't glorify the first century church. We just need to go back to the first century church because we're about to read about a church that had problems. And that makes me happy because we got problems too. And, and, and the thing is, Jesus is the solution. But they had to learn order and how to figure these things out. And, and they had a bunch of discussions and what this looks like. And they're trying to figure this out. Well, this, this man named Saul at the time, who we know as the Apostle Paul, Saul is persecuting the church. He's a religious zealot and he hates the church. And, and he's, he's passionate about why would you proclaim this Jesus as God and Lord? This is blaspheme. So he's going around and persecuting and killing and causing Christians and pulling them in jail. And he has the authority to do that. And one day he's on his way to use that authority in this road called Damascus. He's on his way to Damascus on a road, and God form tackles him and humbles him, and he sits there and says, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. And from that moment, he gets healed, and he starts worshiping and learning about Jesus and this grace that God has brought from the beginning to now, and it changed his life, changed everything about him from a persecutor of the church to now the biggest promoter, pastor, and apostle of the church. And he starts going around and taking these missionary journeys to start churches in different cities. Now, Paul was extremely smart and very strategic. He loved, and you see, he went to cities, not just to the rural, rural areas, which aren't bad to go to, but his passion was to go to the cities because that's where the stream of influence was. And he knew if he's going to influence a whole culture and generation and society, I need to go to the center 
of society and go to these cities. So he would go to Athens and he would go to Ephesus and these cities. He, he ends up in this city from Athens in this city called uh, Corinthians, um, or Corinth, excuse me. And in Corinth, this city was, was really an amazing city, a very wealthy city, prestigious city, lots of arts, um, lots of things going on, lots of influence. It was a port city, so the trade from there directly to Rome would go, so a, a lot of money, a lot of wealth, a, a lot of density and population, and a lot of diversity would be in these port cities. And so he shows up to the city, and he, he ends up ministering and meeting these two people, Aquila and Priscilla, a couple that he trains in the Lord, and then they start having church. They start telling people about Christ, going to the synagogues, and then starting a church in their home until they got relatively big. Well, he was there about 18 months, and then he travels to Ephesus, and he spends two to three years in Ephesus to do the same thing, to plant a church and build a church. He was passionate about going to these cities. And, and let me say this, if you're from a small town, a rural area, that's awesome. That God bless you. We're not anti that. But let me say this, um, the Bible starts in a garden, but it's going to end in a city. The Bible says that heaven will come down and there will be a new city. God's passionate about the city because that's the cultural place of influence. Because there's density and diversity. The density promotes um, a lot of excellence that you need. If you're in a small town or a small pond, you could be a big fish by just a little bit that you're doing. You go to a big city, there's a lot of competition. There's a lot more people and you better up your game of excellence. In church, I think there's, there's a level of that. If you're a church in the city, very different from church in the rural, rural areas. Like trying to talk to, to pastors that are still passing out tapes of their sermons. Okay, you got to catch up with the world here. This is crazy. I don't have a tape player, right? I, I can't help you. Um, but, but to be able to even get technologi technologically better and advanced and go to another place. You better up your game. You better get some excellence because the density, the amount of people, the arts that come out of the city, the cultural change and relevance in society is, is, is it, God's passionate about the city. And we as every nation church love to plant churches in the city. And if you're in Houston, God bless you. You're in an amazing place. Stop dissing this place. Stop getting mad that you're in this place. There's nothing worse than you've got a field and you've got a garden and you're just pooping on it unless it's fertilizer and you're just mad about it. You might as well be excited where you are, prosper where you're planted and be passionate about the city because God's passionate about the city. Because, see, this helps you when you go to your workplace and you go, I'm advancing the kingdom of God here at work. I'm here for a reason. Maybe you're just here for a couple years for residency. God has you here for a reason. Invest. Do whatever you can. Do something. God's got a plan. He's got a work for you to do. And it's more than you just accumulating some money and some wealth, getting a good house, having a family, and moving on. Okay? That is what viruses do. They just get what they get and they leave. Why don't you be a person that loves the city like God loves the city and help to influence it? 
Instead, we get mad about what happens in the city and what's happening culturally, and we, we're downstream from the city, and we're just pulling out the things we like and what we don't like. Instead, go upstream, and let's start influencing the city. If you don't like the laws, why don't you raise up a kid that's going to be a lawyer that could come in and help change them? It's the long haul, but that's the kingdom of God. That's how it works. This is, we have an opportunity being the fourth largest city in the nation to impact the city. One thing I love about Corinth is it's very much like Houston. There's diversity, there's density, there's a lot of wealth, but also culturally, if you don't know, if you think we're just so advanced and the problems we have now are not like the problems they had then, those people are illiterate and dumb, you don't understand history. They're brilliant people and also brilliant sinners back then. In fact, in Corinth alone, they worshiped the god Aphrodite, and they would have a temple with a thousand priestesses. And in order to be filled with the Spirit of God, you would consummate with those priests or priestesses in the middle of the temple or on the temple or with animals. All this stuff is happening in the midst of Corinth with the trade, with sexuality, with alcoholism, with hedonism, which is the love of pleasure or the living and pursuit of pleasure alone. All of this is happening in the context of Corinth. And in fact, Plato, many, many hundreds of years before even Paul's there and writing this letter about 54 AD, Plato called the city of Corinth, he would call the women there Corinthian girls as, as a, a colloquial a statement of a very loose prostitute type woman, a Corinthian girl. And so this area was known for its sexuality, for its hedonism, for its materialism. And what happened is Paul leaves and goes to Ephesus, and he hears through the house of Chloe and others, which we're going to see, that there's divisions and strife, and there's problems, and there's disunity, and he's, he's hurt, he's sad. So he writes this letter to the Corinthians saying, look, some of you were like this. Some of you were about that kind of culture, but now you're starting to succumb to those same kind of pressure, and you're bringing that culture into the church, and he's going, this is not the goal. And he had to come in and correct them like a good, loving father. His goal was to promote unity and maturity. Check this out. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 17. We're just going to look. We don't have time to go through everything. Verse 10 says this. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me that uh, by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or, which is Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. 
Paul is saying there's divisions, there's I'm of this team, I'm, of, I'm about this, and he's saying this should not be. Why are there so many divisions? Someone asked this last week when we were doing our panel, talking about the divisions. Let's talk about it a little bit. And let me first of all say, as we talk about what unity is, what maturity is, let me, let me start by saying what it's not. Sometimes it's helpful as we're defining something. If he's saying be unified, don't be divisive. What is unity not? Let me say this. Unity is not absolute tolerance of all perspectives or views. So you don't elevate tolerance above truth. Now, let me, let me say this because you might get offended in our world. I get it. The original definition of tolerance was the ability to agree to disagree, right? The ability to say, you have your worldview in your way, and I have mine, or you have your religion, and I have mine, and I'm not going to dismiss you or disrespect you or try to harm you physically because of how you believe. That's a great definition of tolerance. We can agree to disagree and be civil. I'm still gonna hold on to what I believe and I will try to persuade you, but I'm not gonna discredit you. I'm not going to disrespect you. That's tolerance. The new tolerance today is believe everything everybody says all the time, and if you don't, or adopt it, then you're a bigot or a fundamentalist, right? Or you're intolerant. The problem with that view is no one lives it out completely. Let me give you an example. Let's talk about sex being, being okay, let's talk salt and pepper, okay. Peppa, you say pepper, okay. Let's talk about sex for a second. A Christian holds to a strong, absolute truth that sex outside of the context of a committed marriage is wrong because we believe, not we want to keep you from having fun, but because we believe sex is more than just physical. We believe it's spiritual. We believe it's emotional. Okay? We believe it's mental and it's physical. We believe, as the Bible says, two are becoming one flesh. And they develop this soul tie together. And so you only want to enter into that level of intimacy with somebody that you are fully committed to in marriage between God and man. That is a line, as a believer, as a Christian, biblically, we would draw. So we would discourage you from doing that. Friends with benefits, not so much what we want. Okay? Now, we would discourage. Now, somebody could say, well, how horrible. You're just cutting off, you know, my libido and what I can do. And, and, but, but, so you're intolerant. But then you have to ask them, where's your line? Because everyone has a line. Do you believe that it's okay to sexually abuse children? No. There's your line. You're intolerant to those that do that. So you can't live that out. You can't live out. Again, there's a level of tolerance you do live out, of course. But absolute tolerance to every perspective and belief and view is insane and not something you can, everyone has a line. There's a line somewhere and everyone will draw a line somewhere and should draw a line somewhere because there is an absolute truth like a plumb line. Me and, me and Henry were 
putting up some signs earlier this week, and we had a, we had a level, and it tells us what was level and what wasn't, because my eye might, might be off, but I have a level and a plumb line that tells me what is level, and we believe there are absolute truths you absolutely obey, and from that, that's how we can create order in this world, and so unity isn't, I just, just agree with everybody all the time, you cannot live that out. You just cannot live that out. And so we have to understand it's not absolute tolerance. And the second thing, unity, is not it's not uniformity. So we don't need to mistake uniformity for truth. And so many churches are the worst at this. If you've ever gone to a church where everybody looks the same, dresses the same, acts the same, has the same kind of stepward, stepward wife kind of answers, right? And very robotic, it's almost scary, it's really scary. I, I've had friends that came out of like a holy uh, Pentecostal type church where all the ladies had to wear dresses, right? And they would have like pool parties and the ladies had to wear dresses to the pool parties, but the guys and the girls couldn't get in the pool at the same time because the ladies would get and their dress would come up. And if guys were in there, okay, we have a problem. And so there's all of these rules that came out of what they did was say, we're trying to be uniform and that is not unity. In fact, it actually kills diversity, which is a beautiful thing. And how many churches do you walk into? I had some conversations with, uh, with uh, someone a few weeks ago who's half Filipino, half white. And she's like, I always feel uncomfortable in churches because I feel like they're always trying to make me white. They're trying to make, like, conform me into this is how we do things. And it's like that is a problem when uniformity is mistaken for truth. Unity is not uniformity. Everybody looks the same, acts the same, has the same career. Everybody, we all homeschool. Like, don't, if you go to church that does that, it's great to homeschool. I homeschooled for a little bit. But if somebody proclaims that as truth, you are diving into uniformity, not unity. Do you hear what I'm saying? Okay. Unity is, so what is unity? Unity is three things. Theological, it's relational, and it's missional. Let's talk about this. In verse 10, he, Paul says to this church, I appeal to you, brothers, I plead with you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. So if we're not after uniformity and everybody looking the same and being weird and cultish, what does unity look like? Well, theological unity looks like this, and this are just a few, but what are the things that we have to be united around? In fact, I just listed a few. If you don't believe in these, you're probably not a Christian. Like there are certain fundamental truths that, that say, I believe this about God and who he is theologically, the study of God. This is my theology that interprets everything else I do in life. And part of this is, are these things. So we believe in, fundamentally, this is, I will die on the hill of this. I will suffer paper cuts for a couple of other things. But I'm going to die on the hill of this, and we can agree to disagree on other things. Number one, authority of Scripture. We believe there's, there's authority behind these words. It's not just mere history. There's, there's power behind the words. And we trust it. And that is going to be our ultimate. Not, well, Chris said this. Well, okay, what does the Bible say? What does the Word say? And let's talk about it. And let's, talk, let's, let's get down what we believe here. Authority of Scripture. And part of that authority of Scripture would be things like the virgin birth, the sinless life of Christ, the divinity of Christ, that Christ was God. 
A lot of religions that are close to Christianity don't believe that. So now we are very different. Resurrection of Christ and, of course, the Trinity. These are just a few. What are some things that, that listen, don't cause divisions but are differences? Because, see, with diversity, we can have differences that don't cause divisions. And I'll explain why and how we do that here in a second. But what are some things that we're not going to die on the hill of? Um, I would say this. Not everyone in this room speaks in tongues. I don't think, I think that's, a, that's not a thing that if you don't speak in tongues, you're going to hell. I don't, I don't believe that. Not everybody has to do that. Not everybody believes in this a specific, uh, uh, how the end times are going to go. Like some of you read Left Behind and you're passionate about it and we're praying for you. But, but that's, I'm not going to let that divide us from associating with you. Those are differences, but they don't have to be divisions. Because we can willingly accept and love you because you have the fundamentals down, but maybe you have a difference or a preference. And I'm going to say this now and later. The problem is when your preferences become your prejudices. When preferences elevate to the level of our prejudice, now we have an issue. And that's where divisions come from. Not when we celebrate each other's preferences. Some of you like food. I cannot eat. I love our Indians in here, but I cannot handle spicy food. Me and Randy are the worst. We, we, we had the waiter take back uh, wings from uh, Buffalo Wild Wings, and they were, like, barely spicy. And she was like, really? Really? Like, made us feel like little boys. We're like, we can't do it. We're like, cry. I, I just can't eat spicy food. But I'm never going to say, if you eat spicy food, you're wrong. That's crazy. That's not biblical. Okay, so we can't divide, we have to unite, and the beautiful thing about being able to unite around your differences, oh, that's amazing, because our goal isn't our preferences, our goal is Jesus. Next thing, look at this, relational, we have a relational unity, this is where people love each other, we, we visit each other in the hospital and help one another. Church isn't just sit here, consume, get mine, and leave and feel better and be encouraged, but to now become a family and be relational with one another. And, and we, we do meal trains for new parents and hurting people, which is where people set up and bring food to people and encourage, and we're building relationship. And there's a level of accountability where I am broken, but I'm not going to let you stay there, and I'm going to help you, and I'm going to encourage you like what Jermaine said, people pushing him into the next place. And we, people that can pray and serve you. This is unity, uni unified with our relationship. The, the third thing, missional unity. Check this out, missional unity. I, I could say a lot about this. Let me, let me give you four things off the top of my head that frustrate me about church and that kills the missions of the church. Number one, when we have prejudices about pastors, I'm of Stephen Furtick, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Andy Stanley, I'm of Tim Keller. These are the people. And you can have preferences, and you should, but when you have prejudices where you won't listen to anybody else, you have now just stifled and you've elevated the prejudice above a place where you're causing a division, not celebrating differences and preferences. And this becomes a problem in church culture. And, and I, I, I talk to people and they're like, man, I got so much from this teaching. And I'm like, well, wh what is God saying to you in prayer? Well, I don't know, but Andy Stanley was amazing. <laughs> Our mission is to be like Jesus. 
Our mission is to promote him. I, when I came to this church and we kind of restarted it and, and, and went, went going, I told everybody from the beginning, I am not creating Chris Pate ministries. I hate that stuff. I'm not about that. I do not want you to come to this church because you love Chris Pate's teaching. In fact, the reason why I bring a lot of other teachers up here is to give us a well-balanced diet. And so we don't become conformed to just me and my style and who I am. Because some of you are like, I like your style. But I like Randy's style, and I like G's style, and I like Scott's style. And I say, that's awesome when it's your preference. When it becomes your, present, your prejudice, there's a problem. I can't listen to Randy. I don't like the way he talks or he cusses at me all the time. Or I, 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 can't, I can't listen to Chris because, man, he's just not as, as studious as this person. Or I don't like this. And it's like, don't you realize you need it all? You need all the perspectives and all the different styles. You need somebody that, you, listen, you need somebody that comes hard at you sometimes. And you go, oh, that offended me. But, man, it's good sometimes to be offended. It really is. Because it's like, that, man, that stirred me up to actually do something with my life instead of just feel better today. You, hear, you need that sometimes. And then you need someone that comes in as comforting, loving, and encouraging. You need the full gambit of the body of Christ. And so we, we have to make our mission, listen, not a pastor. Listen, this one's real big, not a program. Do you all do this ministry? Do you do this? Do you do this? Do you do this? And th there's preferences. You could say, I love human trafficking and fighting human trafficking. But if that's like all you live for, you're now causing division because the only thing, the main thing we're united in is Jesus and who he is. And in a diverse church like this, we can so get off on pastors, on programs. We can get off on property. I, I, I knew a church in, in Abilene, Texas. I'm sorry, Brownwood, Texas, when I was going to school, that literally divided because the color of the carpet in their new sanctuary. Literally divided because the property. Pastors, property, program, and people. Man, I love the people at the church. And you should. And that could be a preference. But when it gets predicated as a when it gets promoted as a prejudice, you're forgetting the mission. Here's the mission. Ultimately, Jesus, be like him. He's the only one with a diverse church like this that's going to keep us together. And thank God, Jermaine's testimony, I can relate with that even though I don't know all his life and his struggles and what he deals with. I know what it's like to be broken, and I can relate with that, and I can say, Jesus did it for me too. Praise Jesus. Let's worship together. It's awesome. It's powerful. I think we need to be united in our mission to love our city. The Bible says, by the upright of the righteous, the city is blessed and promoted. Something powerful about saying, I, 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 I love this. I'm going to be called to this. I'm going to do something for the city. That's our mission, to get beyond us and our walls and our stuff and go out to reach the city for Christ be on mission to do that, to make disciples where it's not just about me, but I'm, I'm going through the purple book or one-to-one -one with somebody and I'm meeting with somebody and we're iron sharpening iron, not this individualistic culture that causes more divisions than unity and social responsibility, of course, allowing, looking at society and going, ah, they're going to hell in a handbasket, but actually going, looking at society and going, I have responsibility because I was broken and now I'm not. And God's working on me. How can I not share that with someone else? How can I not think about how to share that with someone else? See, for us being Christ-centered isn't 
having Christ as your number one priority. When Christ is your number one priority, you, you kind of do your prayer, do your devotions, and then you move on. Now I've got my, my work, my family. But when your Christ is centered, everything flows out of your relationship with Jesus. My work is ultimately about Christ and how can he be the center of how I do my work in excellence and being on time and working hard and being smart and calling on him and asking for his help for wisdom. You see, Christ-centeredness is our mission, is what unites us more than anything. And when we get off on that, we become immature people. And as I close, maturity We need unity, but we need maturity. And let me say this, immaturity in our life can cause an overemphasis on human leadership. We elevate someone to the point, as Paul's saying, I'm glad I didn't baptize you. Did did I die for you, Paul says? Don't don't look to me. If you're sitting there going, man, I was discipled by so-and-so, that's great. What's the goal? Who are they discipling you towards? Jesus? Okay, awesome. Then Jesus is your goal, is your mission. And an immature person makes a person of status, puts them higher than they should. And then when they fall, because they will, they are devastated. And you have to remind them, did you build your life on that person? Did you build your life on that pastor? Did you build your life on, or was it on Jesus? And that's the goal. I would say this, on the other hand, an immature or immaturity can also cause an underemphasis on human leadership. What this means is the people that drive me the most crazy, like people that sin and do crazy stuff, I get that. Like, okay, I'm with you. Let's, let's talk. People that are super hyper-spiritual that are like, you know, it's just me and Jesus. I don't need a church. It's amazing how many Christians don't have a pastor or a church. Only 3% of uh, Christians in America actually give. It's crazy. I mean, that tie 3%, excuse me. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And so, so you talk to these people and they're so spiritual. They're like, I don't need a leader. I don't need, it's just me and Jesus. You're like, well, do you have anybody you're accountable to? Anybody that's discipling you? Anybody that's speaking to your life? No, man, it's just me and Jesus. And how scary is that? Because that's where you get off on the other hand. You don't elevate to the, them to the point of Jesus, but you don't de-elevate them. You don't push them people that are leaders under, and people would do that to Paul. Well, who's Paul? Who's Peter? I've got Jesus. That's called pride, because this Paul is the guy that spent 18 months there developing, nurturing, training, and helping you. There should be a level of honor that's respectable and loving, kind, gracious, the same way you would want it as well. I want to close with a great book. If you've never read, have anybody ever read Screwtape Letters? Yeah? C.S. Lewis writes this book called Screwtape Letters, and it's from the perspective of a demon, like a head demon, writing to a lower class demon on how they can combat Christians and a specific person. It's brilliant. And so he's going to say things. Um, this guy named Screwtape is writing to Wormwood, his little imp, and uh, he's trying to help him on how to get the Christian, this person distracted, how to get them disunified. And it's a brilliant, brilliant, if you haven't read, it's a quick read, it's pretty, but it's amazing, amazing perspective. So he's gonna use the word enemy. And when he says enemy, he's talking about God. Okay, got it? I gotta preface that. Look what it says. All extremes, this is Screwtape writing to Wormwood, all extremes, except extreme devotion to the enemy or God, 
are to be encouraged. Not always, of course, but at this period, some ages are lukewarm and complacent, and then it is our business to soothe them yet faster asleep. Other ages, of which the present is one, are unbalanced and prone to faction, and it is our business to inflame them. Does that sound like our culture? Any small coterie, which is like a clique, bound together by some interests which other men dislike or ignore tends to develop inside itself a hothouse mutual admiration and towards the outer world a great deal of pride and hatred which is entertained without shame because the cause is its sponsor and is thought to be impersonal. Even when the little group exists originally for the enemy's own purposes, this remains true. We want the church to be small, not only that fewer men may know the enemy, but also that those who do may acquire the uneasy intensity and the defensive self-righteousness of a secret society or a clique. The church herself is, of course, heavily defended, and we have never yet quite succeeded in giving her all the characteristics of a faction, but subordinate factions within her have often produced, produced admirable results from the parties of Paul and of Apollos at Corinth down to the high and low parties in the church of England. He says, we want to divide from the inside because if, if we can get them not celebrating their differences, but focusing on their divisions, not being content with preferences and, and really having to kill some of those preferences for unity, but building prejudices will get them from the inside. And if that's not the church today, if that's not the church in Corinth that Paul is talking to, there's nothing more relevant in our culture than this 2,000-year-old letter that says, this is how to be the church, unify around Christ, make him your aim and your goal. And then he's gonna explain more throughout this book how we do that. I wanna ask you to close your eyes, bow your head. So what if unity, maturity, trying to bring a lot of practical elements to how this plays out in our life and our culture. So maybe you're sitting there, okay, what does that have to do with me? Here, here's my encouragement. As you hear my voice, I want to encourage you. If you are in here and you, you don't have a church family, you're a Christian, but you don't, maybe the Lord is saying you're, you're bringing more division than differences, than unity. And I think there's a place of repentance. God, help me. Let Jesus be my aim. Because he's the one who brings grace, peace, and order, as well as love, like a good father, correcting his kids, challenging us to be the sons and daughters we're called to be. Maybe there's some repentance in this place. You know what? I need people. I need to invest in a church. I need to invest my time and energy 
as a believer into what Jesus died for, his bride. There's something to that that's powerful. Maybe the Lord's saying, you know what, if you're not helping in creating positive, powerful diversity, it's easy to create division. And I want to challenge you, especially if you're a member in here, I want to challenge you. Don't forget why we do what we do. Don't forget the goal and the aim is Jesus and promoting him and pushing others to him as we get frustrated about our preferences. Maybe you're in here and you don't know God or you have questions. I'd love to talk to you. And, I, and, and I'd love to go back and forth and, man, let's talk because I'm not perfect. No one's perfect in here. But man, I'm in love with Jesus and what he's doing and what he's done. Because that's what the gospel is. Not what you do, but what he has done. And believing and trusting in that. And I want to encourage you, if, if you don't know Jesus and maybe you're beginning a relationship or you want to know him, it's really as simple as coming to him and you can just repeat this prayer. You just say, Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize you never sinned. I thank you that you went to the cross for my sins as a perfect substitute. And I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for raising, being raised and resurrected from the dead for my sin so that now I can live and be resurrected from my sin. Be my Lord. Be my all. In Jesus' name. You know, if you, if you prayed that, and you're looking for a relationship with Jesus, I'd love for you to come see me. We have people, processes. We have a book and a study. We'd love to help you, challenge you in as the church that's relationally unified. We want to encourage you and help you because there's nothing like a relationship with Jesus. It changes everything. And it brings clarity to everything. Father, we thank you for this morning. We honor you and praise you as an amazing God and creator. Lord, make us a unified church, even as you prayed Jesus in John 17. Let them be one as we are one. In Jesus' name, amen.